Today is Trinity Sunday, when the church celebrates the doctrine that God is three persons united in one substance. The mysterious triune reality of God is hinted at throughout the Bible, including in the beautiful creation story shared earlier. And God said, let us make hum humankind in our image according to our likeness. That's Genesis 1.26. The Holy Spirit has a word for us today in the ancient scripture and the historic doctrine. And I want to pull out just two things uh, notable for today from them. First, understanding God as Trinity informs how Christians are to understand what real power is. Creation is a display of God's power. God's spirit stirs up possibilities. The word focuses and orders. In Jesus, God's word made flesh. We see the three persons of the Trinity communicating with one another, reinforcing a shared purpose, taking on different roles in the work of salvation. Real power looks like communication, cooperation, shared purpose, coordinated action, mutual respect. Even within the Godhead, power is more like a healthy community than a superhero. Second thing, the crowning act of creation is humanity. So that on the sixth day when the community of the divine Godhead says, let's make humankind in our image, it seems most likely that the image of God is displayed in humanity as a community, not in the capacity of one individual, but rather in our connection. That's why I believe that if you've ever wondered if God is still speaking, I submit to you that God has been speaking this week through all kinds of voices. In all 50 states of our nation and even in nations around the world, people have been gathering for 10 days in large numbers to protest. The protests were sparked by the unnecessary and brutal acts of police officer Chauvin and three other officers that led to the death of George Floyd. They seemed beyond callous and indifferent as they restricted his breathing and listened to him plead for breath and for his mother before he went silent. The marchers are protesting this instance of police brutality, but also see it as part of a larger pattern of excessive and unjustified use of force exercised against black men and women, crimes in which too frequently the perpetrators are not disciplined, prosecuted, or otherwise brought to justice, as if those lives didn't matter. The protesters often say the names of George Floyd and also Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Freddie Gray, and others whose treatment displayed a wanton disregard for their lives. To the extent that the protests are directed at police brutality, there are specific demands for change sought, both in terms of accountability and different police policy guidance. And there are specific police policy changes uh, being demanded in Columbus right now, like a citizen review board that would add community oversight to the handling of alleged instances of excessive police force. 
Part of our baptismal vow is that we accept the freedom and power God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. The voices of people using their freedom and power to protest injustice is not only a First Amendment right, it's an experience of baptismal grace. Many longtime civil rights activists have noticed that compared to previous periods of Black Lives Matter protests, these marches are more widespread geographically and have a much higher participation from white people than previously, and a huge new influx of young people joining people of all ages. It seems that something bigger than protesting bad police behavior is happening. I think there's more white wokeness happening, more awareness of what white privilege is, and a beginning humbling recognition of how much the burden of racism pervades the everyday lives of black Americans, tamping dreams with fear and oppression. Social media has played a positive role, um, largely, in that it has allowed me, and perhaps you, to hear the stories of ordinary people share racism's impact on their lives. As such, I see the, much of the protests as demonstrations of a real longing for our society to be a more perfect union, accompanied by a willingness by white folks to begin a journey of learning, how did we get here? What do I need to do? What can I do to change, to make things better? As people of faith, we can name what others may intuit, that we are the image of God together and denigrating the value of the life of any group of people leaves our society with a whole in our collective soul. This is a time for protesting injustice, yes, and learning about the history of the experience of being black in America and perhaps even trying to be a neighbor. A King Avenue church member was brave and vulnerable enough recently to share her journey of awareness through a Facebook post. She talked about her thoughts uh, several years ago and writes, I truly didn't understand what Black Lives Matter was about when it was formed in 2013. I was one who said, well, yes, Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, Gay Lives Matter, Kids Lives Matter, all lives matter. I was an educator and child advocate. She said, though, that recently, the previous week's news of George Floyd's death and Amy Cooper's false accusation against a black man stirred up feelings of disgust, horror, and anger in me. And I'm quoting from her. Social media platforms delivered various calls to action. I took the easy route of answering a call to action by donating money to one organization and joining a discussion group on the book, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Then she really got shook up, she said, because she learned that there was a noose in her black neighbor's tree the other day. She was enraged and started thinking about the protests. But then, interestingly, 
She described how easy it is to lose focus. I thought her description so honest and wanted to relate it to you. Perhaps you can relate to it. I can. She says, I admire those individuals whose call to action is to join the protests all over the country to stand with the black community against systemic racial injustice. This is the greatest expression of our First Amendment right. Now, on our social media platform, some say that taking a knee during the national anthem as a way of bringing awareness to systemic racial injustice in our country is disrespectful to our men and women in uniform. Some say this is honoring our First Amendment rights that our men and women in uniform have fought for. Some say these protests have become violent. Some say the police are provoking and attacking peaceful protesters. Some say the rioting and looting is out of control. Some say the police are using unnecessary force. Some say police are being attacked. I advocate for peaceful protests, and I advocate for the police who protect and serve. And just like that, we changed focus. We changed the channel. She goes on to say, I am committed to staying focused and keeping my channel on Black Lives Matter. There was a noose in my black neighbor's tree the other day. Lord, have mercy. It's amazing how powerful it is to think about others as neighbors. Neighbors are people whose lives matter. Neighbors are people who can bird watch in the woods, jog in the neighborhood, even stop to take a peek inside that house under construction. Neighbors are people who can make mistakes but aren't defined by them. Neighbors are people whose differences are just eccentricities. Neighbors are people whose names you learn. Neighbors are people to whom you extend trust until it is broken. Neighbors are people in whom we see a common humanity. The Washington Post featured an op-ed on June 4th from a former CIA counterterrorism operative who became a police officer several years ago. Patrick Skinner describes the reasoning behind his decision to reframe his work as a police officer away from what he believes is modeled too closely after the kind of occupying military force he served abroad. He instead noted that his mindset and that of his colleagues in his high-crime, high-tempo city is to have a neighbor mindset, which he calls uncomplicated, but not easy. He began his career as a cop by calling people his neighbors, both in official reports and in conversation. He approached every 911 call from that mindset, and I quote him. For example, if there was a phone number associated with the 911 call I was dispatched to, I called it from my personal cell phone and spoke to the person needing help while I was en route. This littlest of things has proved immensely valuable to me as I try to slow down everything while racing to an emergency. I got real-time accurate information about what colleagues and I were heading into, which was often not as serious as it was portrayed initially. I remember being dispatched to deal with a domestic fight, he's destroying the house, a call that generates understandable tension and momentum in the police response. 
I called the number at the bottom of my computer screen and spoke to a woman who told me her autistic brother, who, whom she cares for, had acted out and, having broken stuff in the house, was now standing in the yard motionless. All we needed was to know what name her brother liked to be called and what to avoid doing to make things worse, and the potential drama and risk evaporated before we ever stepped out of our cars. Conversely, sometimes the brief phone call lets us know that the situation is much worse than it seems. As a young cop, I kept asking myself this question. If I didn't have a badge and a gun, how would I handle this call? Whatever I came up with that was legal, transparent, and kind, I would try. Mostly that meant listening to people, letting them vent, and slowing everything down. I'm not saying police should not have a badge and a gun. I'm just saying we must not rely on them. Being a good neighbor as a church was on my mind when John mentioned to me that a black-owned barbershop just down the street at the corner of King and High experienced damage and some theft during this past week of unrest. I'd heard news reports of coronavirus coverage uh, about how many small businesses, particularly minority-owned businesses, were very hard hit by the economy's shutdown, and then to have damage just as they were opening up just tugged at my heartstrings. My grandfather had Ogle Barbershop on the east side of Columbus for decades. My heart just really went out to the business owner, and I asked John what he thought about helping their recovery with a special offering. I think John would agree that the owners of Supreme Cuts are delightful people. But what surprised me the most is that they gave me a lesson in neighboring. We walked to their shop to see the damage and see if they would accept help. And we arrived there several minutes early. We were uh, taken into a side room where the owner um, was sitting with an older man at a laptop computer. She greeted us and apologized for not being ready. We were early anyway, but asked if she could finish up because she was helping the man fill out a form on the computer. Turns out we got to meet Thanos, the owner of Albin Car Services, a business right down the street who also suffered damage last week. Thanos is an immigrant from Albania, a reportedly wonderful mechanic, but not great with technology. Fortunately, he has a good neighbor in Dion. For the sake of a neighbor, our wise church member on Facebook took a step on a journey to learn how to be an anti-racist. For the sake of our neighbor, our offering will go as a small step towards healing community racism and to support the recovery of the businesses, Supreme Cuts and Albin Auto Services. And because the peaceful protesters are doing God's work, we'll support them with some water and snacks as well. For God's sake, for the sake of the image of God, Let's keep on learning how to be good neighbors in the days ahead.
may it be so. Amen.